If you would, in your Bibles, please turn with me to the letter of Revelation, chapter 11. Revelation, chapter 11. If you do not have a Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to have one open. And uh, a Bible in front of you, and the pew back in front of you, um, the passage is found on page 1034. On page 1034. And our text this morning is Revelation, chapter 11, Verses 14 to 19. Uh, just so you know where we're going in the letter of Revelation over these next several Sundays. Uh, we'll continue in this letter through the end of July. And that, Lord willing, will bring us through chapter 16. And then we will take a short pause from the letter. And so for um, September or August, September... Uh, we'll be in a, another portion of God's Word. Uh, please be praying about uh, what that should be, as, um, as what would be good for us as a church. And then we will return back to the letter of Revelation uh, in October, and again, Lord willing, finish that out by uh, Thanksgiving. So that's our plan here for this, uh, for this letter. Uh, but we come to this portion here in Revelation chapter 11, in verses 14 to 19. And we're going to be coming back to the seven trumpets. If you recall, we went through the six trumpets there in through chapter nine. And then there was a an interlude starting in chapter 10 and runs half halfway uh, uh, through uh, chapter 11. But now we come to the seventh trumpet. And the theme of this seventh trumpet is giving God thanks for his judgment. Now, just think about that for a moment. Giving God thanks for His judgment. Now, typically when we use the word judgment, it's always used more in a negative context. We think of judgment as bringing uh, condemnation upon someone because they have uh, done wrong and now they're being judged for something that they have done wrong. And, you know, it's not, a, it's not really a, a happy feeling that it brings about with, with us. And oftentimes the same could be said of God's judgments. When we think about His judgment that will come at the end of time. As we make it to the end of this letter of Revelation and we get into chapters 20 and uh, more particularly chapter 21. And looking at the white throne judgment of God and that all the peoples will stand before this holy throne will give an account for their lives, and because they have not repented of their sins and placed their their faith in Christ, because their name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, they will be judged for their sin. And certainly that is a, a heavy moment. But it is something to give God thanks for. And that is the theme that we see here in the blowing of this seventh trumpet. And so the title of today's message is The Goodness of God's Judgment. I hope that by the time we get to the end of chapter 9, not chapter, but verse 19, that you will see that God's judgment is good. And so since we don't have many verses here this, this morning to cover, let me read them all in their totality. Starting in verse 14. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, the Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, an earthquake, 
and heavy hell. Let us pray. Father, we come now to the, to the preaching and to the hearing of your word. And so, God, we are in need of your spirit to, to lead us, to lead me in the proclaiming of your word, to lead us in the hearing of your word. And so, God, lead us in the truth that is found here in this text. God, as you see fit here in this portion of Scripture to put our attention upon your coming judgment and the result of it. God, let us see that it is good because, God, ultimately you are good. All things that you do are good. And so, Father, use this time now to bring glory to you, to exalt our Savior and your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. And so we begin here in verse 14. And there in verse 14 it says, The second woe has passed. Behold, a third woe is soon to come. And so just real quick, turn back to chapter 8, verse 13. And we are introduced to these three woes. And so there in chapter 8, verse 13, it says, Then I, so this is the Apostle John, he says, Then I looked. And I heard an angel crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And so just in context, the three, the first three trumpets have already blown and we've seen the effects of those trumpet blasts uh, upon the earth. And now for the next three trumpet blasts, or excuse me, for the first four trumpet blasts, we've already seen those. And for the next three trumpet blasts, five, six, and seven, these are the three woes that are to come. Now the word woe, just so you know, we're not calling a horse to stop here since we live in Texas. I think we need to make that that distinction. But the word woe means it's a state of intense hardship or distress. And that's what we've seen in those, uh, really the first six trumpet blasts, but especially in the trumpet blasts of five and six. We're told there, and we won't turn there, but in chapter 11, verse 14, the first half of it, it says that the second woe um, um, has already been brought, and that was trumpet number six, and that was plagues that lead to death. In chapter 9, verse 12, was the first woe, and that was trumpet number five, and that was emotional torment that's being brought upon those that are are not believers, not followers of the Lamb. And so certainly these are times of great hardship and distress upon earth dwellers, non-believers, those who do not follow Christ. And we know that the seventh trumpet, which is going to bring the the third woe, is still to come. And that's what we are introduced here in chapter 11. The third woe is is now coming with the blast of this seventh trumpet. And the hardships of the seventh trumpet, the woe that is going to be brought with it, are going to be felt when the seven bowl judgments are poured out on the earth. This is chapter 16. This is where, Lord willing, we're going to put our pause after we get through chapter 16. But the seven bowl judgments, I encourage you to read chapter 16, maybe uh, this afternoon so you're familiar with it. But just look at verse 1 of chapter 16. Just listen to uh, to the hardships that will be brought just in a summary form. In chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And then the rest of the chapter depicts what those seven bowls are. His wrath that will be poured out upon the earth. And so this seventh trumpet blast that we are introduced to here in verse 15 of chapter 11 It is very similar to the seventh seal that we read about in chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. If you recall, when Jesus broke that seventh seal from that scroll, that that, the breaking of that seventh seal unleashed the seven trumpets. It led to the seven trumpets. Well, here with the blowing of the seventh trumpet, 
it ushers in the seven bowl judgments. Now, we won't get to those judgments, obviously, until chapter 16. And so starting in chapter 12 next Sunday, when we get into it, we're going to see more of the story unfold for us uh, leading up to those bowl judgments. But just so that you can maybe get a little bit of a timeline in your mind as we are walking through this letter of Revelation, again, I've warned us that we need to be very careful in putting chronology uh, to the events of this letter. That doesn't mean that there's not chronology to the events, but we need to be very careful uh, in how we do that so that we don't overstate or understate what God has revealed to us. But it appears to me that the seven bowl judgments, that they're going to occur in the final three and a half years of the tribulation. Remember, we were introduced to this last Sunday about the, that seven year, around that seven year tribulation period. I believe that the blowing of the seventh trumpet is about midway into that tribulation and these seven bold judgments are going to be poured out in those final, in that final half, just prior to the return of Christ. And so in the first three and a half years of the tribulation or in the first half of the tribulation are the six trumpet judgments that we've already read about and the two witnesses that we were introduced to in the first half of chapter 11. Because if we recall over in verse 3 of chapter 11, it says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And you remember the story that after 1,260 days, three and a half years, that they are put to death by the beast and those that follow him. But then three and a half days later, they are raised to life and taken to heaven. I believe that that's the first half of the tribulation. And so as we come to the seventh trumpet blast, I believe, again, it's in about midway into this tribulation time. And so that brings us here to verse 15. Looking at when the seventh trumpet blows. Now, I don't think that what we see here, uh, starting in verse 15, running through verse 19, I don't think that this is what the seventh trumpet brings about. Again, I think that the seventh trumpet ushers in the seven bold judgments. But surrounding this event of the seventh trumpet is what's given to us here in verses 15 to 19. And so what we first see in verse 15 is this, is that God's judgment is good because it establishes His eternal kingdom. It establishes His eternal kingdom on earth. That's what we are learning here in verse 15. Let me just read this verse again. It says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so here in the first half of this verse, we see that the seventh trumpet, it calls forth loud voices from heaven. And I think that these loud voices, they're probably angelic voices. Um, it could be the saints that are in heaven at this time are joining in. Uh, but probably more, it's the, the angels uh, that are gathered around the throne of God that they are declaring this statement. But just think how different the blowing of the seventh trumpet is compared to the breaking of the seventh seal. If you recall back in chapter 8, verses 1 to 5, it says that when Jesus broke that seventh seal, is that it says that there was silence in heaven for half an hour. It brought silence because the angelic host was just in awe of what God is about to do. But here it's different. The blowing of this seventh trumpet, it calls forth loud voices, not just one loud voice, but a multitude of voices declaring this statement of verse 15. And this phrase, loud voice or loud voices, it occurs 20 times in the letter of Revelation. And so it's a phrase that you see repeatedly throughout the 22 chapters. And when you see loud voice or loud voices uh, mentioned it is to command the attention of the reader. Yes, it, it happened in the vision that John was given. He heard these loud voices. But when it is written down for us today, it is to command our attention. It draws our attention to what is about to be declared. 
And what's declared here in verse 15 is what God is going to accomplish in the future. And that is the establishment of His kingdom. And so let's just break down just briefly this statement of these angelic voices. It's there in the second half of verse 15. The kingdom of the world. You see, the, the, this seventh trumpet, it announces the establishment of Christ's kingdom. That is God's eternal kingdom on earth, but it belongs to Christ. And when this seventh trumpet blows, it does not usher in immediately God's kingdom or Christ's kingdom on earth. It's, John's not saying to us here when this seventh trumpet blows that everything immediately changes by the end of the tone of the trumpet. Now again, there are still several events to occur. Again, we, we still have chapters 12 through 15 to look at before we get to the bold judgments of chapter 16. But I believe that here when this statement is made that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of Christ, this is the overthrow of the earthly powers of the earthly nations and the establishment of Christ's kingdom. And that is given to us. Those events are given to us in Revelation chapters 18 to 22. So if you want to read ahead later today or this week, look at those chapters. In those chapters, we see the great city Babylon mentioned. And that this great city Babylon, which represents the kingdoms of this world, is that this great city is defeated and destroyed at the coming of Christ. And so the vision given to John at the seventh trumpet, it looks forward to after the defeat of the Antichrist, the defeat of Satan, the defeat of the powers of the world. And the victory of Christ and the defeat of Satan is often spoken of in this vision, in these verses, as in the past tense. That means it is so certain that it is spoken of as if it already happened. Now notice in this announcement here, verse 15, there's really two parts to it. The first part is the defeat of the worldly temporal kingdom. The defeat of the worldly temporal kingdom. Notice there it says the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of the world. It doesn't say the, uh, the kingdoms of the world, which is interesting because as we've already seen in this letter of Revelation, and you'll continue to see in the letter of Revelation, is that it speaks of, of nations, of tribes, of languages, of peoples, all in the plural tense. It's to draw our attention to the, to the worldwide globe, everyone who dwells on earth. But here it just uses the singular, the kingdom of the world. The reason for this is that it is referencing that one evil power that is behind all the nations of the earth. And that evil power is Satan. Look real quick at verse 9 of chapter 12. Verse 9 of chapter 12. It says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan. And what does he do when he's thrown down? That is, thrown down to earth the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. What is one of the things that Satan does as he has been thrown down to earth? It is to deceive the nations, to cause them to continue to not to follow Christ and not to give themselves to God, but to follow him. And so the kingdom of this world is the world as we know it today. Romans 8 tells us that it is a world that is under the curse of sin. John chapter 12 tells us that it is a world under the rule of Satan. Ephesians 2 tells us that it is a world filled with people who follow the ruler of this world. Ephesians 6 tells us that it is a world of spiritual warfare. John chapter 7 tells us it is a world that hates Christ. 
And John chapter 15 tells us that it is a world that hates the followers of Christ. But you see, this world will not stay the way that it is. The way that we know it to be today, the way that it will continue to be until the return of Christ. You see, Satan's reign and rule will be brought to an everlasting end. Now, that's the ending of the letter of Revelation. So if you didn't know the ending of the story, I just gave it away for you. So that's the first part of this announcement. It is the overthrow of this worldly kingdom. But the second part of this announcement is the establishment of Christ's eternal kingdom. Because here the angelic voices, they say the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. You see, this announcement tells us that this world will be, that is this world, this earth, will become the place of Christ's reign and rule. You see, heaven as we typically talk about it, we usually talk about heaven as the eternal home of Christians. And and I get when we say that, and sometimes I do slip up and say that, but I understand the intent behind it that when a saint in this world dies, that their spirit goes to be with the Lord in heaven. And praise God for that. That you get to go and see your Savior, that your faith becomes sight. But brothers and sisters in Christ, heaven's not our eternal home. This world is. This is why there will be a resurrection at the end of time and our souls reunited with our bodies and this world is going to be recreated into a world that is free of sin, free of hardships, free of Satan. And that is what Christ is going to do. Christ will establish His reign and rule by defeating the Antichrist and the false prophet. We don't have time to turn here, but that's Revelation chapter 19. Christ will establish His kingdom, His reign and rule on this earth by defeating Satan. This is Revelation chapter 20. And Christ will establish His reign and rule on this earth by judging the unrepentant. This also is in Revelation chapter 20. And so in this kingdom, in the kingdom of Christ, the world will be as God intended it to be. A world without sin, a world without turmoil, a world without war, a world without disease, a world without death. That is what is to come. So what can we take from this verse here? I tried to put this as succinctly as I, as I could, so... Hopefully I can explain it well, but listen. You see, the world that we live in is a messed up world. I know what you're thinking, Pastor. It took you all week to come up with that statement. (laughs) Not that statement. But here it is. This world is a messed up world. But the irony is that though people want a better world, I mean, we hear songs about this in secular songs. John Lennon's song probably is the most well-known of it. His song, Imagine, Imagine a World Without War, Without Poverty, Without Hunger. I mean, all these things. And And in part, it's like, yes, that is what we all want. And so this world wants a better world. The people of this world want a better world. But you see, the irony is this. This world cannot be better, will not be better, until Christ returns. And this world rejects Christ. And so the world that that the people want, that they dream of, that they wish for, they will never get because they reject the one who will bring that world. You see, the world wants the positive effects of Christ's kingdom, whether they would state it that way or not. They want the positive effects of Christ's kingdom. No death, no illness, no wars. But the world does not want the rule of Christ. But you see, those two things can never be separated. 
You can never separate the blessings of Christ from the rule of Christ. You will either bow yourself in submission to Christ and therefore receive the blessings that He gives, or you will stand in opposition to Christ and never receive those blessings. And so actually, I think we could say this, the way the world is now, with its wars, with its turmoil, with its disease, is the world that people actually want. Because when you don't want Christ, this is the world that you get. But brothers and sisters in Christ, let us not forget that this world is loved by God. Yes, it is a world that is opposed to God, opposed to Christ, opposed to followers of Christ, but it is a world that God loves. The most probably well-known verse, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, and that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but shall have eternal life. So brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the world that we go into and proclaim this good news of Jesus. Jesus has sent us into this world, into this world that He knows hates us because it hated Him. And we are to take this message of the gospel, this message of salvation through faith in Christ and submission to Christ. We're to take it to them. And as we take this gospel message to the world around us, we don't promise a better life now. We can't go and say, trust Jesus and life is going to get better for you. In fact, we ought to be honest with people and say, you know what? When you trust Christ, life might get worse for you. Your family may hate you. Your friends may reject you. Because you are now following the Lamb. We don't promise a better life now but we do promise a better world to come because this is the promise that God has made. So now that brings us to verses 16 and 17. And here we see that God's judgment is good because God is the ruler. Why is judgment good? Well, it's because God is the one who judges. God is the ruler. Look at verses 16 and 17. After this statement by these angelic voices, it says there in verse 16, it says, And the 24 elders who sit on on their thrones before God, they fell on their faces and worshipped God. Let me just pause right there. These 24 elders, we've already been introduced to them. We won't turn back here, but over in Revelation chapter 4, we were introduced to these 24 elders. They're they're there gathered around the throne of God. And there we see in chapter 4, verses 9 to 11, that they fall on their faces before God and they praise God. And there in chapter 4, they sang of God's rule over all creation, saying, God, you are the creator of all things. All things belong to you. That was their hymn In chapter 4. And that same theme carries forward into this hymn that we have in verses 17 and 18. That God is the creator, that he owns it all. And so there in verse 17, we see that this is a hymn of thanksgiving for God's judgment. For these 24 elders, they say, we give thanks to you. Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Well, the beginning of this hymn, it sets our minds rightly upon who God is. They say you're the Lord God Almighty. That word there, Almighty, it's used only ten times in the New Testament. Nine of those ten times are found in the letter of Revelation. And over in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for it is translated in our Bibles as the Lord of hosts. And what does that mean for God to be almighty, for God to be the Lord of hosts? Well, we won't turn here for sake of time, but that word means that God is holy, that God is powerful, that God is sovereign. No one can stop what He intends to do. He is the holy God over all of His creation who will hold His creation accountable to Him. That's what Almighty means. They say who was, who is, and who was. 
This speaks of God's eternality. That He alone has always existed and will always exist. People ask, where was God before the creation of the universe? Well, there was just God. He always has been. What this tells us is that there is a vast difference between God and His creation. This is normally referred to as the creator-creature distinction. Because sometimes God's creation wants to kind of blur the lines a little bit and say, well, God, you're a little bit like us and we're a little bit like you. You're just a little bit smarter than we are. You're just a little bit older than we are. You're just a little bit more loving than we are. And the answer to all that is no. God is in a different category than His creation. He's not different by degree. He is different by kind. And so God is judge because He alone is almighty and He alone is eternal. And then in the second half of verse 17, because He's eternal, because He's almighty, God is the only one who has the ability and the right to take His power and to judge the world. That's what it means there when it says, For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Now this verse doesn't imply that God has not been exercising His power already. Because God does exercise His power already. Now and in the past, we see in the, in the accounts of the Scriptures, like when God released His people, freed His people from Egypt. He brought plagues upon the earth. He, he divided the Red Sea. He provided for His people in the wilderness manna. He provided water out of rock. He shows His power. Now this verse states that God in one final act will exercise his power to defeat the kingdom of the world and to establish his eternal rule on this earth. There is coming that time when God says enough is enough. The time has come and he just squashes his enemies in a moment. Not just a moment, in a second, in a millisecond. And he establishes his kingdom on earth. Oh, what can we take here from this verse 17? Two things. The first is this. The idea of God sits too easy on the minds of people in the world. The idea of God sits too easy on the minds of people in the world. This hymn begins with who God is. It sets our minds aright as to who He is. And yet this world, most in this world still will say, yes, I believe that there is a God out there. They might not identify Him as the, as the God of, of the Bible, or they might give Him some other name, but they'll say, yes, there is this God that is out there. But this idea of God, it sits too easy on their minds. For they will speak of God as the rescuer when someone gets in trouble. How many people who say that they're not a Christian, that they're, uh, that they're atheist, agnostic, whatever it may be, but when their life is just going uh, apart, that they say, God, help me. And they think that God should just be there at their beck and call, that when they whistle, you better respond. They think that God is the tribal God of their nation. God, our nation is being attacked. God, come and help us out now. Yeah, we've been defying you and all the things that we have done, but you better come and save us because we're better than the worlds around, or the nations around us. Or this world will say that God is just too loving to be a judge of people. He's too loving to do that. He's like a big grandpa. You know, when grandparents come to the house, grandkids do, never do anything wrong. We've all experienced that. Growing up, our parents would punish us, it seems like, for the smallest things. But then when our kids do it and our parents are there watching it, oh, isn't that cute? No, it's not. But they think God's like a big grandpa. So in the minds of people in this world, God is not holy enough to be a judge. He doesn't have the right to do that. But it's easy to criticize the world, isn't it? It's easy to say, well... The idea of God sits too easy on their minds because they don't follow Christ. They haven't come to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. But what about the church? 
I believe that the glory of God sits too easy on the hearts of people in the church. That the glory of God sits too easy on the hearts of the people in the church. You see, a weakness in the church today is that Christians, they want to feel the presence of God. You know, they want to go to a church service and, and have the music blaring, the, the smoke machines going, the lights flashing, and just sit there and just sway and hum. Oh God, I just feel your presence. But they don't want to feel the weight of God's glory that comes with His presence. This is reflected in our thoughts about heaven. Sometimes people will say when a, when a loved one has passed and, and they were a Christian, they'll say, you know what, heaven's become a better place because so-and-so is now there. Oh yeah, read Revelation chapters 4 and 5 and tell me how it can get better than having the throne of God and the Lamb standing in the center of all that's taken place. You see, instead of saints joining in on the chorus of the host of angels in praise to God, to the Lamb, some Christians think that Jesus ought to be there at their beck and call when they get to the the pearly gates. The glory of God has sat too easy on their hearts. This is reflected in our songs about God. Our songs say that God is our best friends and uh, best friend in time of loneliness, that God is our deliverer in times of trouble, that God is our healer in times of sickness. Now, all these things are true, and we should proclaim those things. We should sing those things because those are true of God. But, brothers and sisters in Christ, if that's all that we say about God, We are saying too little about Him. We are saying, God, I'm going to take certain things from your revelation and just pull out the things that really make me feel good, that really comfort me. I'm going to leave some other things behind. I was tempted for us to turn to Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 to 6. And say, can you imagine a song being formed around those verses? Now you want to look at them, don't you? Turn to Isaiah chapter 63. We'll do it. Isaiah 63, verses 1 to 6. I just want you to imagine, whatever you want to call it, a hymn, a song, song in the church based on these verses. Isaiah 63, starting in verse 1. Now this, let me just tell you the context. This is looking forward to the return of Christ when he establishes his kingdom. What we've just been reading about, about that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of Christ. That's what this is looking towards. So starting in verse 1, it says, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their life blood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was none to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought, my, brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Oh, you don't see those verses written on nursery room walls, do you? I'm not saying that we should, so... Please don't go to our nursery room and write that on there. It's scripture. It is all true. I'm just saying that we tend to neglect those things. And when we do that, the glory of God sits too easy on our hearts as his people. And so the remedy for this, the remedy for this 
is to reclaim the language of who God is that's found in His Word. And brothers and sisters in Christ, I would just encourage you over the next several weeks just to take time and read through the Psalms, the Psalms that we are, can be so familiar with, at least with certain portions of them. Read through the Psalms. How does God reveal Himself to His people? How have His speak, people spoken of Him? Yes, we speak and we praise Him for His grace and for His mercy, for His loving kindness. But He is also a holy God. A God who will pour out His wrath upon this earth. And He is to be praised for all of this. And so the church needs to reclaim language about who God is and to praise God for who He is. And now lastly, verse 18. God's judgment is good because it brings justice. It brings justice. Look here, it says, The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. And for the rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Oh, the final part of this short hymn of these 24 elders, it is looking to that day when the, all the dead that have been ra- now raised to life, which will be every single person that has ever lived in this world, no matter what time that they existed, going back to Adam and going all the way forward to the day that Christ comes back, they will stand before God. That time has now come. When it says that the nations rage, that's just talking about how the nations are gathered against Christ. You'll read about this, oh, in Revelation chapter 19. And so you can turn there this, this afternoon if you would like. But the nations have raged against Christ. They thought that they could stop His reign, that they could stop His rule from coming on earth, but they couldn't. And now God's judgment has come. The time for the dead to be judged. And I believe that that refers to every single person, saved and unsaved. So we see there in the second half of that verse that God will bring justice for His people. Justice for them. It seems like I've alluded to this verse several times, but in my mind it's becoming more of a key verse uh, through the letter of Revelation. But turn back to Revelation chapter 6 in verse 10, particularly verse 9. On this day of judgment... God brings justice for His people. For if you recall that the uh, opening of the fifth seal, starting there in verse 9, it says, When He opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for their witness that they had borne. So these are followers of the Lamb, followers of Christ. And then verse 10, They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Meaning, how long will it take you to bring out your vengeance upon those who have persecuted and killed your people? And then verse 11, Then they were given each a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Meaning, more will be converted. More will be persecuted until Christ returns. And now coming back here to verse, or chapter 11, verse 18, that time has come. God brings justice for His people. He rewards His people. And I won't take time here this morning. I'm just looking at the clock. We don't have time for this. We'll have other opportunities as we go through this letter. But God is going to reward His people for their faithfulness. For a major theme in the letter of Revelation is conquer, continue on, don't give up, don't quit following the Lamb, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how many people persecute you, no matter how many people tell you how stupid you are to do this, continue to follow the Lamb, don't give up. And for all those saints who don't give up, they're going to stand before Christ and be rewarded for their faithfulness. 
And God is going to vindicate His people now upon all those who have not repented of their sins and placed their faith in Christ. That's the last part of this hymn in verse 18. That's where there when it says, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. You see, God will bring justice upon the rebellious. And when I say rebellious, I'm not just talking about those that have just raised their fists physically towards God and just said, God, you're stupid. God, you're, you don't exist. And I'm not just saying that those who are rebellious are those who persecute God's people. The rebellious is every single person that does not follow Christ. It could be the most religious person in our day today, the one who seems so spiritual, so kind, and so polite, but they haven't bowed their knee to Christ. They have rebelled against Him. It is everyone that has not come to Jesus. And their day of judgment has come. You read about this in Revelation chapter 21. These books are going to be opened. And they're going to have to give an account for their lives. And it doesn't matter how polite you are. It doesn't matter how nice you are. It doesn't matter how much community service you gave to your town. If you never bowed to Christ, it says that they're going to be cast into the lake of fire forever. That's the justice that will come. Again, as Christians, we don't necessarily take joy in that. Because you might know of a loved one, a family member, a friend that has already died and they died without Christ. And your heart is just heavy for them because you know what their eternal fate is. Or you have a family member or a close friend now who is not following Christ, who is not bowed, has not bowed to Christ, and you know that the moment that they die, if they should die this day, that they will not be with the Lord forever, but they will be cast one day into the lake of fire forever. And your heart aches for them. So we don't take joy necessarily in this. But we give God thanks. Because He is a just and good God. And this is what sin brings upon itself. And so for anyone out here today, let me just tell you that God's judgment is good if you're on the right side of His judgment. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. If you want to turn there, you can. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, and I close with this. It might be verses that you are familiar with. But here in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, the Word of God says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear, appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Oh, what this verse is saying is that death will come to every single one of us. Now, yes, when Jesus comes back, that will be the end. We'll talk about that later in the letter of Revelation. But everyone will die. And the moment that you die, that you pass from this world, your decision to come to Christ is over. There is no second chance in hell. There is no second chance when Christ comes back because as the text says, when Jesus comes back, He's not coming back to offer salvation to people that have refused Him. He's not saying, see, every, what, I, what all my people told you is true, so come to Me. He's not doing that. When Jesus comes back, He is gathering His own sheep to Himself. And for all, the, uh, for all those that are not part of His fold, they will stand before the judgment throne of God and cast into the lake of fire. So brothers and sisters in Christ, God's judgment is good because we're in Jesus. Jesus has taken our judgment for our sin on the cross. And now our sins have been forgiven us, separated from us as far as the east is from the west. So we look forward to that day of His coming. But if you are here today, 
And do you think to yourself, well, I'm a nice person. I'm polite. I'm kind. I serve in the community. Wonderful. Continue that. But if you haven't come to Christ, you will fall under the judgment of God and found guilty. So would you come to him today? Would you just see how good and how kind Jesus is? That he offers to you today salvation. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let us pray. Oh God, you are to be praised for who you are. And God, we do praise you for your grace and for your love and for your mercy, for your kindness. These are things that you show us each and every day. We do not deserve them. But God, through the blessings of your Son, Jesus Christ, you pour them out upon your people. So God, let us always praise you for who you are. But God, let us not, let us not limit who you are. Oh God, teach us as your people to sing praises to you, to give thanks to you for your judgment, for your holiness, for your wrath. So that, God, that the weight of your glory would just continue to press upon our souls. That we would have that view of, of heaven as it is declared to us there in verse 19 of chapter 11, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and heavy hell. Oh God, things in there that sometimes might be hard for us to understand, but God, just the weight of that image just bears upon us to tell us that you are a holy God. God, thank you for being so good and so kind to us through your son. And I pray that if there's a man or woman here today that has not bowed their knee to Christ. Father, today I pray that you would just let them feel the weight of their sin. To know the guilt of their sin. And then, Father, open their eyes to see the glory of Jesus. And to taste the sweetness of the grace that he offers to him or to her. So, Father, work within them. Draw them to yourself by your spirit through your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.